If you like the Creative South podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every dollar helps us cover hosting costs, upgrade equipment, and keep the podcast going. With options starting at just $1 per month, you can help support the podcast and even wind up with some cool Creative South podcast swag. When you become a Creative South patron, you'll get access to exciting Creative South news before anyone else. A shout out on the podcast thanking you for your support. Creative South podcast stickers and t-shirts. So, please help support the podcast by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash creative south. Welcome to the Creative South podcast. I'm your host, Jason Frostholm. Today, I'm talking with one of sports design's greats, Todd Radom. Todd and I sit down and chat about growing up in a family of commercial artists, starting out after college designing kids' literature book covers for Hearst Publishing, going out on his own and renting a desk from Paula Scher, working with Ice Cube on the branding for the Big Three Basketball League, and his upcoming book, Winning Ugly, a visual history of the most bizarre baseball uniforms ever worn, and more, all right after this. I talk about Jack Prince on the podcast all the time, and today isn't any different, except that I want to talk about how much we rely on them at Creative South. Not only has Jack Prince been a longtime sponsor of Creative South and the podcast, but they help us with so many cool things every year. Whether they are making our pop-up displays and tablecloths, or printing our notebooks, Jack Prince is always there when we need them. They even printed my Creative South podcast stickers that have a coupon code on the back that gives you a great discount on all of their products. Speaking of stickers, Jack Prince will print any kind, shape, size, stock, including full-color stickers with full-color liner prints for you to use as product labels, promotions, bumper stickers, hang tags, business cards, and more. Right now, you can get 500 3x3-inch die-cut stickers starting at $149 when you visit jackprince.com. Plus, Jack Prince is giving Creative South podcast listeners 20% off all orders, over $25 when you use promo code CREATESOUTH17 at checkout. Visit jackprince.com for your next order of stickers, prints, or whatever you need today. Thanks for joining me tonight. Jason, thank you so much. I'm happy to be with you. Well, I've, I've been looking forward to having you on forever. It took me a while to get up the nerve to ask. Though. Oh, come on. I'm, I'm, uh, I am not shy, and uh, I'm, I'm always available to, uh, you know, to impart whatever I can impart. So I'm really happy to be with you. Sure. There, I, I'm, I will freely admit I am not much of a sports guy, but there are a few sports people in the design world that I follow, and you are uh, definitely at the top of my list. And that's not me just blowing smoke up your ass. Oh, I appreciate it. But, you know, we'll get into it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a sports designer, but I've had several careers within one career. Awesome. Well, um, we'll, talk, we'll get into all that, too. Yeah, so, absolutely. So forward to it. So, so let, let's kind of do the traditional way that I start off of where did you grow up? Uh, I was born in New York City. I have never lived more than, let's say, 40 miles from New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in Yonkers, New York, which is just north of the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm a New York guy through and through. So New York is one of the, and, and I say this as New York State, not New York City, is one of those weird, because the closer you get into the city, the thicker the accents get. Yes. And then the farther you get out, the more neutral they get. Whereas it's kind of reversed for a lot of major city, a lot of places that have major cities in there. So I've, I've, I've always been curious I, I, about that. I always, always, my mother was always very, uh, very proper about diction. Ah. So I kind of have this flat, uh, uh, uh I, I'm, I'm not my, my good friend, John Contino, for instance, who is a new <laughs> through and through and you, you can tell, you can't tell by my voice. Yeah. He's definitely got that borderline of the Bronx and Queens, uh, accent going on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, you get into Jersey, it's a little bit different. And uh-huh. then you get what, what would be termed upstate and, you know, uh, that, that has more in common probably with the Midwest than any place else. So yeah, yes, New York state is a big place. There's no question. <laughs> yeah, and the problem is people only know about New York City. They don't really know much about the rest of the state. <laughs> it dominates. There's just no way around it. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 growing up, were you 
big into art or were you, you know, the jock kid who fell into art later on? No, I mean, my story is I am a fourth generation working artist. Okay. So uh, my, I'll start it at the back end. My great grandfather uh, was a uh, sign painter, painted Mm -hmm. murals, worked uh, a series of jobs at the turn of the 20th century. I have a, um, a uh, census thing that, that, talks about him working at the Colt Manufacturing Company, making oh, wow. handguns. Uh, but at any rate, his um, his son, my grandfather, who was a great influence on me, someone who I remember fondly, uh, was an illustrator and a painter. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, he made a living doing this. Uh, my grandmother, his wife, uh, taught at Parsons, went to Parsons School of Design in New York. And then they had my father, who was uh, uh-huh. sort of a creative jack of all trades, a photographer, an advertising guy, did some copywriting, did graphic design. Uh, you've got me. I have one brother who is a photographer, a retoucher. I have a cousin who is a, an internationally uh, renowned jazz drummer. Oh, His wow. Were um, a sculptor mm-hmm. and an actress. And, uh, you know, you go all over the place. So, yeah, I come my, my, my creative DNA runs very, very, very deep. So, so you come from a family where the arts were encouraged and going into that was not uh, frowned upon. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I consider myself very fortunate because, of course, there are so many of us. And I will – I think about one thing in particular when it comes to this part of the conversation. I have sure. a friend of mine who I went to college with who uh, is a high school art teacher. Okay. And I haven't done it in a while. But every couple of years I'll go there and I'll, I'll talk to his students about this. And you look out at this group inevitably of 25 kids and you know mm-hmm. certain number of them don't care. But they're high school students. And there are a couple who are considering pursuing a career in the arts. And you hear the same thing. And, of course, it is inevitable. Uh, my parents don't think it's a, a, a viable <laughs> career track. You should go to business school, this kind of a thing. In my case, I was very lucky. On the one hand, it wasn't necessarily uh, encouraged, but it was not discouraged either. And I'll I'll relay a very brief anecdote that uh, sure. my grandmother, who I mentioned, who taught you know went to Parsons, very just creative inspiration to me to this day. Um, when I went out and started to do my own thing freelance at the age of I'm trying to do the math here, 26 something like that, mm-hmm. she said to me, she says, you know, it's not going to be easy. I said, oh, yeah, I know that. She says, you're not going to get a regular paycheck. I'm, I'm totally aware. She said, you remember, your grandfather and I, we would make plans for the weekend, and he'd get a job at 5.15 on a Friday and have to cancel. <laughs> I was like, yep, I'm, I'm aware of it. And she looked at me and she said, you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's that's the one thing. My I'm, I'm kind of the same as you. My parents never discouraged it, but it wasn't encouraged either, and – you know, when I explained to them the working on the weekend and stuff like that, they still just like, are you sure you're OK with that? So. <laughs> well, yeah, I always yeah, I mean, it's uh, part of what the job is. I hearken back to, you know, the, the great bluesman, John Lee Hooker, mm-hmm. the song that he and he's like, it's if it's in him, it's got to come out. And I think mm-hmm. that that's the case with art. And of course, you know, this could really go into a we could go off the rails on this part of it. (laughs) But everybody knows somebody who um, didn't pursue that and Mm -hmm. or didn't pursue it enough. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm uh, like I said, I'm I'm very lucky and uh, saw this first. And I would say my role models career wise Uh were right in front of me. And, um, you know, and and it's provided me great, uh, great stuff all these years later. Sure. Well, I'm I'm. Kind of doing the math there. If your great grandfather was turn of the century, your grandfather had to have been doing it right around the WPA time. Yeah, absolutely. I have uh, a bunch of illustrations from my grandfather. So my grandfather, uh, I think, you know, his first professional jobs were in the 20s and into the 30s. And he really, you know, I mean, he made a a decent living, certainly a middle class living. Hard to believe as an illustrator. Doing spot things, I have uh, illustrations of his for Reader's Digest and these trade publications. Um, you know, not necessarily glamorous stuff, but uh, very, um, again, workmanlike, a very different world where somebody like that could really earn a very steady living, um, just kind of like pumping stuff out. Not No gigantic jobs, but a bunch of small ones 
that paid the bills and uh, allowed him to do his painting in his spare time. Awesome. So when you were coming up, obviously you have all these influences that are, you know, literally in the house with you um, or, or probably not too far away as far as like grandparents and things like that. When, when you got to the point where, you know, high school's going on and you're looking at like colleges and things like that, did you, well, A, did you go to college? And if you did, did you study art while you were there? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, I went to the school of visual arts in New York, Mm-hmm. Four years. Another York, good school. <laughs> early 80s. Uh, to this day, I'm very involved. I'm the chairman of the board of the SBA Alumni Society. So I knew we that. Have, Why did I ask if you went to college? I knew that. There you go. <laughs> so we have something like 30, 35,000 alumni around the world. And sure. I have part of my duties with that. I'll get back to your question in a moment is is uh, preaching the gospel of SBA and and, you know, Awarding our, our corporate partners with with, you know, thanks for for supporting us and things like that. So, yes. Yeah, so I did go to art school. I you know, I, I often think about this. Well, maybe not often, but I sometimes think about what I might have done if I didn't go into uh, into the arts. And uh, honestly, Jason, I don't know what that would have been. This was a natural thing from day one. Um I did it. You know, I, I started out doing a couple of freelance jobs here and there. My dad would feed me a couple of things because sure. I was doing lettering and illustration when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'd make a couple of bucks on the side doing this kind of stuff while still in high school. So I, I go to School of Visual Arts four years, um, very much a foundation first year. I mean, this is what they mm-hmm. always, you know. Little bit of everything: illustration, photography, graphic design, advertising, some humanities classes. But I think you know the the track for me was always going to be graphic design. I've been inspired by and interested in typography and commercial art since uh, as far back as I can remember. Sure. Looking at signage and things that you know no normal fourteen year old is going to be looking at. <laughs> sure. Except maybe people who are listening to this. Well, yeah, I imagine it was around the house since that's, you know, kind of what your dad did as far as, you know, he did advertising and photography and all. So you have a lot of commercial art and then you've got, you know, your great grandfather's, which I'm sure he probably, he, if you're like most people, he probably wasn't around when you were coming up. No, but. no, 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 no. My, but my grandfather, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, he would take me to museums in mm-hmm. New York and I remember going, going to the Metropolitan Museum. My grandfather was a very proper man. He sure. painted it in a tie. He was very dapper. He wore these amazing suits. He had this very nicely trimmed mustache, very handsome guy. He was actually <laughs> a model in his later years. And I still see his image in stock photography on occasion. Really? Yes. And he's been gone for, you know, 35 years now. Oh, but, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but I remember, like I said, him, you know, pointing out paintings to me. And as far as my dad's concerned, you know, there were those days that he would haul me into the city with him on a Saturday when he had to work. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had a studio at 72 Fifth Avenue in Greenwich Village. Oh. I remember it to this day. And, uh, you know, this was old school. They had dark rooms. They had, uh, you know, all kind of, this was cut and paste days. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Lots of paste-ups, lots of mock-ups, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So all that stuff was all around me growing up. And, yeah, I was inspired by that. And it, it supplemented my curiosity. Sure. So when obviously you're studying design and all, did you have an inkling of what you wanted to do with design when you were in college? Because you have you have, and and I want to get you know kind of on the long career path, but you yeah. you have a very specific focus now. So I'm wondering yeah. if there were hints at that when you were in college. Absolutely. So the story with with the my interest in sports design, um, you know. I'll give I'll give discussions all over the place. And I always have this one image that I have in my presentation. Uh, And it is an image of a scorecard from a New York Yankees game uh, when I was 13 or so. And I doodled each of the cap logos of every team in the American League. And I I still have the thing. It's Mm -hmm. part of this. It's part of my presentation. And I talk about the fact that, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I would write away the teams for decals and schedules and stuff like that, things that had logos. I was interested in the uniforms, always, always, always back then. Sure. So vaulted into the college years, which is, you know, not too many years after what I'm talking about writing away for these things. Um, 
I really considered uh, being an illustrator. Um, you know, I, I, I had this uh, style of crosshatch illustration, which was very successful. I was doing freelance jobs in New York City mm-hmm. while I was in college, getting paid, you know, pretty good in the scheme of things. But at the same time, I was a hand letterer. Now, this is back in the day when hand lettering literally meant ink on on yeah. this substance called dineral, which uh-huh. was sort of this this plastic stuff, and uh, with rapidograph pens, exacto knives, and you know that's a that's a, that's a skill that was really pretty valued. And um, I loved lettering the same way that I still love lettering. I've just taken it into a digital space because. That's our tool of, uh, you know, our, our tool of uh, choice now. Sure. So, uh, so I think that, you know, the sports part of it uh, was there. But, of course, then I could not have imagined, you know, making, uh, making a career out of that very specific niche. And why is that? It, because it didn't really exist. There were well, no I was about to say. To to, um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, advertising, traditional graphic design. Um, things like poster design, album covers, mm-hmm. book covers, stuff like that. All that stuff inspired me. The sports stuff was part of that, but it wasn't outsized. Sure. When when you got out of college, what did you end up doing right out of the gate? So uh, I graduated from college in uh, 1986, a long time ago. So we're still doing it traditionally then. Sure. Pace, the stuff that I just talked about. Um it was it was kind of a scary time because it was in the middle of a light recession and mm-hmm. I had to get a job. And so uh, I interviewed and um, about I would say after about a week and a half after graduation, I got a job working at Hearst Book Publishing uh-huh. in the children's book division doing um, doing kids books, doing covers, very small department um, and very traditional old school publishing Back when books were made, you know, you would specify <laughs> you would specify the art for the, the case on a hardcover book and sure. things were being set old school. You'd have to send away for type. But I got to flex my my lettering muscles back then. I remember they did a um, a replica, um, uh, basically a facsimile book of the original volume, original edition of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. I got to illustrate the cover of that and the casing of that and do the lettering. So, yeah, that was my first stop. Wow. So doing that sort of illustration, that hand lettering in that format, what since it's your first job out of college, what are you what are you learning there that you didn't pick up in school? Because I know at least for me, my first job out of college, I learned more there than I learned my entire time in college. I mean, you know, it was great education. I'm obviously still a big believer in the school. But when you, I think with pretty much any of us, hit the quote unquote real world, you yes. are learning about deadlines in a way that, uh, you know, it's it's a very different situation. Sure. I learned process. I was very fortunate because my, um, my art director, my boss back then, was just a, a very nurturing uh, human being. That with deadlines and it's kids books, it wasn't, you know, we're not we're not racing down the, the barrel of. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> they were, you know, so there was process and she taught me she gave me really rewarding work that I could leverage to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned about basically how stuff gets done in the real world and certainly in the arcane book of, of the world of book publishing in the 1980s. You know, there was a lot of that process. But it was about hierarchy and about attending meetings and all of that good stuff. And as far as the design part goes, you know, she really gave me it was it was a lot of varied stuff. It wasn't, you know, all that great. wasn't solely the lettering stuff that I talked <laughs> about, but it was working with photographers and going sure. to a photo shoot and all that great stuff. And I stuck around there for I'm trying to think probably a year and a half. And, you know. She always knew that, you know, I was on to the next thing whenever that was going to happen and helped me out with that. Gave me a couple of freelance jobs here and there. So, uh, you know, it was a good, very soft place to start. And I'm very thankful. Gotcha. When, what path did you see your career path on at that point? Book publishing, doing covers. So the second job 
uh, which coincidentally is my last full-time job. Ah. Uh, I went from there to uh, Penguin Books, to Viking Penguin. Okay. And, you know, into the, the art department. And it was probably – do the math here. I mean, you know, it was a 10-person department, something like that. And we are pumping out book covers, covers, mm-hmm. just covers here. And, I mean, this is high pressure. You are, you know, rolling this stuff out to, you know, just – I mean, volume was – Absolutely incredible. Uh, back in those days, and it's funny because what goes around comes around. I see, uh, <laughs> I, I see, I see uh, the typography for Stranger Things. Sure. Right now, well, I did the book cover and the hand lettering for Needful Things by Stephen King back in the <laughs> late '80s, which that's kind of based on. Yes, so very much so. Around long enough, and everything comes full circle. Yeah, but, I, I remember the first time I saw. St- the Stranger Things logo, I was like, I have seen that somewhere before. Where have I seen that before? Yeah, I mean, it was a genre, <laughs> but it was yeah. I was part of it. I did a couple of those. So, uh, you know, and at the same time that I'm pumping out hundreds and hundreds of book covers over at Penguin Books, I'm also freelancing for other publishers. This is a common thing. I'm working for Simon & Schuster and for, I mean, you know, Random House and you name it. And uh, it's it's hand lettering. Mm-hmm. You know, which is which is a pretty good thing back in those days. Some spot illustration and design, just book cover design. So probably back. I mean, I've, I've if I if I could run the math, I would I would give you a conservative estimate and say that I've probably designed at least a thousand book covers in my life. Oh, most wow. of the way back when. So that was the route. But at the same time, you know, uh, this interested in sports design always was there and just being an observer of things. Um, you know, I'd, I'd go to, uh, go to games with friends, go to Mets, Yankees games. We used to do road trips, go places. And I'm always observing this stuff. I'm buying a program. I'm looking at logos and, um, you know, that was, that was always going to be, I, I was always going to try to figure out a way to navigate those waters. Gotcha. When, when, when you eventually decided to go out on your own full time, what what was the uh, impetus behind that decision? Was it just your freelance work had come into a point or were you kind of uh, forced into it kicking and screaming? Well, there's actually a good story to it. <laughs> so um, I, I, I'm trying to put this diplomatically. Sure. I worked for a guy who maybe was, you know, uh, a, a, a little bit of a different a different kind of boss than my first boss who I just talked about. And, um, uh, one day, you know, I started to get frozen out. There was no work for me. I'd go in in the morning. What is there for me to do? Rub my hands. Nothing. Trying to squeeze me out. Well, one uh-huh. day in a little office and I go into my little office and all the furniture is gone. So I said, well, I guess this is it. So I negotiated an exit. I actually took work away from there. You know, he would <laughs> work, which you know, which was good, but I had to find a place. So I went and I, uh, I, I, I knew a guy who rented a desk from Paula share for $150 a month, if I'm not mistaken. So I went at that time, this is before she was at Pentagram. She was, uh, at a firm called Coppell and share. And, uh, I went to Paula and, uh, I rented a desk from her. And as part of this office, I had, uh, I could fax things out. I had use of a conference room if I needed it, but it was literally, Jason, it was a desk. So I rented <laughs> a desk and I kept the work moving with book jackets. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I continued to get that stuff. I continued to get uh, the hand lettering. And I'll tell you what, I made a really good living, all things considered. And again, I'm going to do the math. Yeah, I was 26 years old. And out of a potentially bad situation to having my furniture taken away, Sure. Uh, <laughs> that's that's possibly the most passive aggressive oh, um seriously. move I've ever heard of. Yes, absolutely. But it was all for the best and and I've always been kind of an entrepreneurial guy and he knew it and I knew it. I was going to do my own thing at some point. Sure. But uh you know, there was no real incentive for me to, you know, before I had kids there, you know, it's not like a not like I had a a very um, you know, demanding lifestyle. That that uh, it was like yeah, you could be complacent and get a paycheck and have the insurance and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, once once that move was made, I never looked back. And 
my last full-time paycheck came in, um, I think it was July, 1990. So here we are. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're, 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 you're passively aggressively forced into, uh, doing freelance full-time and you're, you're renting the desk from Polish here. Um, how are you going about, you know, building the business for yourself and then, you know, transitioning into what you do now? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I think it, you know, for the listeners, for probably the majority of listeners, it, it deserves a little bit of a description. This is the shortly before everything went digital. So hand skills were very valued. Uh, it's before the Internet existed. So how do you market a business? You market a business with a very, um, you know, dropping off your portfolio at, at clients. Now, you know, a lot of ad agencies, I, I should also say at this time, I was doing quite a bit of advertising work with the uh, Ogilvy and Matter Direct. I had a couple of buddies who worked okay. over there and uh, they're on the AT&T and American Express account, blue chip mm -hmm. stuff. So I'm doing stuff at top dollar for these guys and just living it up. I mean, it's the most fun thing in the world. Um, as a matter of fact, sometimes I would, I, I had one guy who was an art director who I would, uh, he'd go on vacation and I'd go up and I'd sit in for him and, you know, do like a, uh, a, a full-time quote unquote, full-time freelance gig for a couple of weeks. Sure. And that was great. So the advertising work is there, but you know, you would do a drop off. You would take your portfolio, which literally was this box, this, this box with, with stuff mounted on uh, uh, 15 by 20 black mat boards. Mm -hmm. and I remember you, those. <laughs> you, would, you would pick the thing up at the conclusion of the day and there would be a note in it saying either, you know, this is very interesting or usually the form letter, which uh, was uh, thank you for dropping your book off. Um, in addition to that, I would mail out postcards and, you know, really do, you know, cold calls, stuff like this is what everybody did back then. Sure. That's the way you advertised it. And, you know, the, the clients were there and, and it was a way to connect with a very targeted audience. So to kind of uh, get to the sports part of it, I remember reading an article in uh, Business Week magazine about the business of Major League Baseball and about mm -hmm. how they were professionalizing their design services and advertising in a way that we cannot imagine now. But uh, back then, it was pretty undisciplined. The the um, logos were, you know, very haphazardly assembled into a style guide. There was sure. no real there was no real discipline or plan behind the um, behind the look of the game. So I read this article and about how they were planning to grow revenues and and uh, deal with the licensing part of it, and it really interested me. So um, of course, I had I had a ton of baseball books in my portfolio because. Along the way, I probably designed more book covers on on baseball than anybody mm -hmm. in the business back then. I mean, dozens and dozens. So I had a I had a pretty good targeted thing to do a drop off at Major League Baseball. I found a name. I wrote a very targeted letter talking about the fact that I am not only the guy to do this stuff, but I'm also a consumer of the business. And uh, lo and behold, that note that came back in the portfolio that day said, why don't you come back, whatever, you know, next week, whatever that was for a meeting. So this was it. The foot is in the door. And uh, I had that meeting. Um, didn't take away any work that day, but it was a very productive one. It was with the sure. with the uh, head of design who is still there and with a uh, with the head of publishing, which was uh Seemingly a very good connection for me as well back then. I mm -hmm. uh, got a got a test job several weeks later, and like I said, that was I mean my goodness that was back in uh, 1991, so it's a long time ago. Yeah, so that, that was fairly quickly after you went out on your own that you started kind of getting into that and building that up. Yeah, it was. <clears throat> you know, baseball was the start. Um, sure. I really didn't pursue work with uh, the NBA until several, several years later. Same with the NFL, anything else. You know, I'm a, I'm a baseball fan. always have been. I, felt I can, back then, I can like, tell by the wall behind you. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> exactly. We could, do a, we could do a 180 here, a 360, and show you some more. But, um, yeah, I mean, this was the stuff I was born to do. And, um, and again, think about those, those very valuable hand skills back then. Um, yeah, I mean, it was really, you know, 
just a perfect, perfect marriage of, of every confluence, timing, client, everything. So, yeah, I mean, that's how it started. Sure. So through this, you, you build up this relationship. Um, and, and like you said, you weren't really seeking out the other sports at this time. You were just kind of building all that up. And when, when you started, did you start seeking out like stuff from NBA and football and stuff like that? Or did they kind of they came run to into me. you? Yeah, they came to me and, and, you know, it was a very small world back then in, in sports design. Sure. Now, uh, you have professional teams and colleges who employ people in house. Well, this really was, this was not the case. Our friend Joe Bosak, who I know you, you interviewed not too long ago, yeah, uh, describes it as, you know, if you had a meeting and this will be several years later because he's a little bit younger than me. You know, I think he says you could you could do it in the, the back of a Starbucks at a table for six people. I mean, it was really a very, very, very small world. So uh, as leagues started to, you know, what I would term professionalize their 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 uh, internal operations, there weren't too many people to look for, for toward this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. A very, very small world. So word got out there. And, uh, yeah, you know, typically people move along to other places and, and, uh, down that trail, you, you get, you get taken the same thing goes on now, of course. But if you think about it in this, in this very, very small situation, um, yeah, you're, you get sort of branded as an expert. I don't know about an expert because that took a long time. I think that, you know, the, the knowledge behind really how this stuff is, is done and deployed, but just a really good, um, uh, person who can execute the stuff and is passionate about it. So I got a little bit of reputation for that. And, uh, of course, one thing leads to another. So when, when you were doing this and first starting working on these things, did you ever get approached by a team and just, for lack of a better word, just feel that complete imposter syndrome of, what, they're going to find me out that I don't know what the heck I'm doing at any no, point? not really, because nobody did back then. <laughs> I mean, in the sports end, nobody did back then. And again, sure. you know, so so uh, just to put everything in the proper context in terms of the digital world, you know, everything goes to Mac, I would say, in late, you know, mid-1992, let's say. Mm-hmm. So it's it's easier to get noticed then than it is now. That's for sure. sure. Um, in In so many ways. So now I think, you know, the industry was maturing. Um, I'm very lucky there too, because I had people take a chance on me, even though I was very young, but, um, but I'll tell you, Jason, I, you know, the, the fact that I was passionate about this subject matter, I studied it. Mm-hmm. I've always been a researcher, uh, somebody who, you know, just had digs into the material before executing. And, uh, that was the case back then too. And, you know, that, that was pretty valuable as well. So, uh, you know, navigating through that too. I don't think I was ever, you know, and, and I'm a pretty confident guy. So that helps. Sure. So, um, yeah. So, so what was it like transitioning between, you know, the sport that you're the biggest fan of into other sports where, yeah, I don't know your level of fandom of basketball or football or hockey or whatever, but you know, I know for me, like I told you before, I'm not a big sports guy, but I like, if I'm going to go for a sport, it's hockey for me, yeah. um, just because I grew up in the Midwest. Um, so I know a lot more about that than I do about the other sports. Um, so how how did how did those research skills come in handy when you were making that leap? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I think you know, I, I mean, I've always been interested in observing all sports, pretty sure. much, not all, but you know, the the big ones. Curling um, wasn't uh, big on your list. Pardon me? Curling wasn't big on your list. No, 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 no. Curling, <laughs> not big on my list. But, you know, but hockey, on the other hand, hockey, yeah, absolutely. I used to go to a lot of New York Rangers games back in the 80s when I lived a block away from Madison Square Garden. Nice. Uh, very scary uh, YMCA on Ninth Avenue when I was a student. But I was I dig- about to say, that wasn't a good area back that then. That was not a good area back then. It was pretty frightening. But, but I did, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but it was an opportunity to, you know, kind of like, okay, so here's the material. I'm somewhat familiar with it. Um, again, 
being a guy who loves the research end of it, it was a really good challenge. Kind of like what makes this particular fan tick? What is the heritage of this particular franchise? Um, one of the projects that I got involved with at baseball very early on was researching and making digital um, old uniform lettering, cap marks, sleeve patches, uh, primary logos, that kind of stuff. And again, doing them, doing them up right and you know, building an inventory. Well, one of the first jobs that I was called upon by the NBA to do was essentially the same thing. Oh, OK. Classics line. Um, and it was uh, back in the late 90s. They were contemplating opening up a store, which did happen mm-hmm. on Fifth Avenue in New York. So it was building up an inventory of this stuff for them to sell into the store. Great, great challenge. I learned things about teams and, you know, the, the history of the NBA that I really never knew before. And the same applies to um, I did the the identity for the Basketball Hall of Fame okay. back in 1997. Still oh, being wow. used today. It's yeah. still around. It's like this this very 90s thing that's that's uh, you know <laughs> a long time. But there too, just being able to dig into this this project of something that maybe was not at the forefront of my interest then was a, a really good design challenge. Sure. So. I, I, Going into that and and building that, and I want to, I guess I want to take a hard left and ask you about a couple other things so we can yeah. get them in before we run out of time. I'm curious, how did the the big three basketball stuff with uh, Ice Cube come into play? Because that's oh yeah, it's 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 almost it. Well, it is a startup essentially. It's it's a startup sports a league thing startup. and. Absolutely. No, it's a great question. And that has, you know, I would say that, that for the better part of 10 months, that was a good, good chunk of my design life. Maybe I can imagine 80 percent in a in a great way. So um, I'd say late September of 2016, uh, you know, so last year I was contacted by um, Cube's um, management company that he's dealt with for many years. Sure. Um, and. You know, brought me into the thing. They found me on the internet. One of these <laughs> wonderful things. Very different from dropping off your book. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it wound up being uh, – so the pitch was we are starting a three-on-three basketball league. It is a total and complete startup. Um, and uh, we need a logo. Okay, mm-hmm. well, I'll help you out with the logo for the league. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was expressed to me very early on that, uh, listen – you know, this is a, a tight group of people, the people that, that Ice Cube deals with, that he professionally he's dealt with for 25, 30 years. Essentially, you know, they they are thick as thieves in a good way, and this is their next venture. And these are entertainment people, so they know what they're doing with this. So I was brought in and uh, fairly soon after started dealing with Cube himself, who is, you know, aside from being a, um, you know, just this legendary entertainer he's really he's a he's an incredible incredibly creative guy his mm-hmm. attention to detail of visuals is just unbelievable when you really think about it for somebody who has uh made this move from being you know one of the most dangerous people in in america as part yeah, of the NWA ga- gangster to, rap star to like, you know, yeah i mean movie and star. then producer and yeah right, and, and a much beloved uh guy in you know barbershop and you know, yeah. all that stuff so you know, yeah it's from it's gangster to family comedies <laughs> yeah exactly so um so when we start to get into individual teams for this thing it was just me and him and oh, wow. uh, yeah and that was that was a pretty unbelievable process and so for probably a good four months um, you know, I would say in the last, in the last, in the, in those, those, those 10 months that I discussed earlier, I did a count of texts, emails, phone calls. I, I was in contact with him more than I was with anyone in my life with the exception of my spouse. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that goes, that, that includes my, my children and, and, you know, <laughs> one daughter is off at college. So yeah, it was a pretty intense, um, very, very, uh, pressure filled, time to do these things and to really set up best practices. So it's a startup league. This is mm-hmm. a, a, a group of eight teams that are not based in cities. There is no history. It is literally a blank canvas. So how do you do this? How do you uh, basically create the underpinnings of a licensing program 
So X team needs a logo. No, X team needs a primary logo, a couple of secondary logos, a uniform design, a set of custom numbers um, that is different from this other team, which mm-hmm. is different from the other team and so forth and so on. It uh, wound up that um, I sourced out and went and uh, had uniforms manufactured for each team. Uh, I was charged with designing the trophy for the championship, mm-hmm. uh, finding a place to make that and signing off on that and getting it delivered. So, so Had you done any trophy design before that? <laughs> uh, I've sketched a couple of things and I've been involved with some stuff, but certainly not to the extent not of this. Not on this level, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and this thing is a beast. It's a 30-pound you know, very expensive bobble. Oh yeah. I've seen the pictures. Yeah. And so, um, so, you know, for somebody who's been in this business as many years as I have, and you know, I know my way around designing identity programs. This was a great challenge because number one, I'm, I'm in the trenches with somebody who I admire as a creative artist, Mm -hmm. who's just a terrific, terrific guy, implicit and total trust going both ways. And uh, having uh, the opportunity to really you know, dive into this thing, to the design of the court, to decals for the court. Imagine, I liken it to uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd mm-hmm. Wright, if you've been in a Frank Lloyd Wright home or piece of architecture, everything is designed down to the light switch. Yeah. This was that. It was my opportunity to, you know, think about everything kind of like, you know, conducting an orchestra. <laughs> and uh, I would say with all candor that, um, you know, this is something I couldn't have done not too long ago. Best practices and understanding how the pace of this works and having the contacts to pull off uniforms and trophies and stuff like sure. that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was just a great and really, really fun challenge. But it seems like a huge undertaking to be able to manage all of those aspects of it and you know. Yeah, and 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 I am a certified control freak in many respects. I will always <laughs> say that I have worked by myself for myself for all of these years. I have never outsourced a dime of design work. Really? So literally, yep, that is a fact. So you know, on uniforms, um, I am <clears throat> creating, like I said, custom numbers and uh, varying them all, and really looking at all of these aspects. Uh, including how does this stuff look on broadcast? What does this what does this stuff look like? Stuff meaning the court, the logos, mm. the warm ups, the you know everything. How does this look on you know in arenas, big arenas, with LED lighting, which is a very different thing from anything we had even a few years ago. Yeah. Um, you know there are a lot of a lot of really interesting criteria to this thing, and uh, yes, to your original point definitely a startup and there's an energy to that too because mm-hmm. being involved with you know emails every week on who's being traded and what the rosters are and being in touch with the uniform guys and making sure that stuff is shipped to the next seat yeah it was a really really fun thing so i'm looking forward to year two as well yeah it's, it sounds uh really exciting to work on and, and to work with that core group too oh absolutely and and listen you know i'm i'm very very lucky um, you know, week one, it kind of all came around. So week one was in Brooklyn at the Barclays Center. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sitting right under the basket on the floor in the front oh, row. Wow. And uh, I mean, to see you know, more than 15,000 people in this place, to see this all come together in such a short amount of time. And uh, I look over to my right. And if you can imagine the perimeter of a basketball court, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in this one. So just, you know, just off to my right, there is Cube and I catch his eye. And he catches my eye and I'm going to I'm going to do this. And you're looking at me. I raise both my hands and look up like, I can't believe we did this. And he just like points his finger at me and like, yes. <laughs> so uh, it's very energizing and such a cool thing to be involved with. Yeah, it's it's been fun to watch you kind of developing all that stuff on uh, social media. It's been uh, an interesting journey. Well, and it's nice to be able to share it, which is not always the case with the, yeah. the vast, vast majority of things that I work on. I am not allowed to share that stuff. I have I have an entire vault of stuff, which someday I will crack open and you will be amazed at things <laughs> that I've worked on that I'm not allowed to discuss. In the case of Big Three, they've been very generous. And that's part of this partnership is that uh, everything's up for grabs, even to the point that they had an article about me with a lot of sketches in their uh, game program that was oh, so really? Re- which is really cool. It respects design and 
you know, as creative people, that's that's uh, that's a really important thing. Yeah, well, I think from a marketing and business standpoint of that, that makes a lot of sense for them because it it helps build hype over something that's brand new is people can see all that stuff and see that it's not being hidden away and secretive. It's, you know, I mean, no, obviously, good, you know, you want to keep some mystery about things and, you know, release yeah, them at the proper time. But it's it's actually a perfect example of the fact that, you know, uh, people care about this stuff. Mm-hmm. That uh, there are people who are don't know squat from graphic design, but they're they're logo geeks, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is all about the kind of fact that this stuff is so scrutinized and it's very tribal and your relationship to your team runs through its uniforms. As Jerry Seinfeld very famously said years ago, we don't root for teams. We root for laundry. The players come and go, but the laundry remains the same. And so <laughs> the level that people uh, the level of interest people have in this stuff. Uh, it really transcends so many other things. It really makes you care about executing this stuff perfectly because it's going to be scrutinized. So I guess to your point, the fact that they put it in the you know game program, which is very accessible, sure, extra cool thing. Yeah. So so speaking of the uh, laundry that people care about, let's uh, let's transition into your book that's coming out. It's coming out in April. Is that right? It is coming out in April. So the genesis of the book uh, lies in uh, me sitting at JFK Airport in New York in late March. And uh, I am about to board a flight for Rome, which leaves at 10 p.m. So uh, I'm in the uh, business class lounge there, and I'm checking my email. And uh, it's a Friday night, and in my email comes uh, across something from an editor at the New York Times, the New York Times. And it was a request for me to write an editorial for the New York Times opinion page mm-hmm. uh, about um, about ugly baseball uniforms, <laughs> about about something about ugly. Like it was it was not a very well defined pitch, but sure. of course it's the New York Times. So before I get on that flight, I'm like, of course I'm interested. Give me a little more detail about what you're looking for, and uh, I wound up doing a um, I mean, it was cut back, but it was probably a, a 1,100 words, something like that, um, uh, essay mm-hmm. about the fact that, uh, you know, there was a time that our sports identities were not so focus tested. They were very organic <laughs> in a certain sense. And there was a great deal of experimentation, which sometimes resulted in, you know, hideous dumpster fires. But on the <laughs> other hand, nostalgia is such a powerful thing. And I'm a kid of the 70s. And I sure. remember these things, and I'm looking at it through the lens of somebody now all these years later. And um, we moved forward, and, and uh, a publisher contacted me and said, geez, this, is gonna be a, this would be a great idea for a book. So we hammered out an agreement. And uh, you know, one of the things that I would say that, that I feel is really important to say, especially to our Creative South audience, is you know, as I've kind of like shot through the years here, I've never adhered to a, a label necessarily. I'm a designer. Mm-hmm. But I'm also a researcher and illustrator and a letterer and and a writer. And I've always prided myself on my writing. So this particular book is, uh, you know, it's it's thirty five thousand words. And that was an interesting thing. So I have designed books. I've designed all the book covers that I referenced earlier. I've never written a book. I've written a lot <laughs> of articles. I've written long form. I wrote an op ed piece for The New York Times on ugly baseball uniforms. But this is a book. It's accompanied by uh, something like one hundred and twenty images. Uh, uh, several illustrations of mine. It's a humorous take on the ugliest uniforms, but it's also, you know, essays uh, about um, uh, about the history of the fact that people have cared about this stuff for so long. A lot sure. of research went into that. Also, what makes a great uniform uh, uh, from a bad uniform? Teams that went off the rails that you might not have expected to at one point in time. Uh, historical oddities, um, you know. Strange experiments, stuff like this. So it was a really fun project. It is being uh, designed right now in house. Uh, did not. I'm. I am not designing the interior of my own book, which is a very. <laughs> I was about to say when you say designed in house, does that mean you or by your publisher? No, the publisher. <laughs> and, you know, the control freak in me is a little. You know, but you have to kind of like, you know, kind of step away and and. Uh, well, you were able to let the reins go better than Draplin then, because he designed his own book. Well, I know it. I know it. And uh, John Contino, I mentioned earlier, too, I believe he has a book coming out. But, you know, uh-huh. the difference is 
those guys, it's about their work. This is not sure. about my work. Sure. If it were about my work, I'd be designing it. Okay. Well, that uh, makes sense. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a different thing, but I did do the cover. And anyway, uh, it's being published in, it's called Winning Ugly, uh, a visual history of the most bizarre baseball uniforms ever worn, all major league uniforms, and it's being published by Sports Publishing in uh, April. Awesome. Well, it sounds like it came together pretty quick, too. If if, if you wrote the article in March, how, yeah. yeah, wow. So yeah, I, I wrote a book over the summer in between Big Three and myriad other projects. It was a very, you know, I'm not afraid to work hard, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, the summer I worked hard and I found myself writing, you know, without this kind of roadmap to how to do it. Uh, sure. sitting in airports writing. I've done a lot, a lot of travel this summer too, for all kinds of things. So I remember sitting in, sitting in LaGuardia, banging mm-hmm. out 1500 words on the 1976 White Sox. Like, <laughs> look at that. I can yep. do this. So yeah. <laughs> Specifically the, the, I think that's probably one of the, uh, uniforms that I consider the ugliest is. Oh, absolutely. When that the era of the White Sox. Out, I mean, you know, for, for those who aren't familiar with it and we're, you know, this is this is not a visual medium that, that we're discussing this in. The 1976 White Sox famously wore shorts for four games, mm-hmm. the only time in the history of Major League Baseball. But they had these very strange looking jerseys, which were untucked with big floppy collars uh-huh. and a giant V-neck. Very, very strange look. And there's a story behind it. So there you go. <laughs> I got some good, very good people to uh, to talk to me for this book and maybe some you know, some opinions and some insight behind some of this stuff, this very visible stuff <laughs> that uh, nobody else could get. So it was kind of a fun thing. Gotcha. So since you did a uh, book about the ugliest uniforms, what what do you think it is, is the ugliest uniform out there? Is it the 76 White Sox or do you think uh, there's you know, more ugly, ugly is a very subjective thing, isn't for it? For you, for you, no, what is – so I don't know that there is necessarily one, but I could give you what I would say is the 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 pantheon of ugly baseball uniforms. And we'll sure. stick to baseball because this could be a, a six oh, hour. Yeah, you could you could have a whole series of all, just all the different sports. Absolutely. So the most prominent of them all is uh, are the uniforms of the team that won the World Series last night, as I am speaking to you, the Houston Astros, who from nineteen seventy five to eighty six wore their very, very signature multi-color striped uniforms of mm-hmm. orange and red and yellow, uh, the tequila sunrises, the rainbows. Mm-hmm. I happen to think they're they're beautiful. Um, I'm a guy, but they're undeniably ugly. They're weird. You would never do them today. Now, no, I kind of like that. Thing. Yeah, I can, you, you have something to say. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I actually do like that uniform. Yeah, <laughs> like I had to picture they're, they're, it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, there, there's I expand upon this in great detail in the book. But uh, the first year, they had like a giant circle on the back with the player uniform number in the middle in an old West font. I did not remember that part yes. of it. But. <laughs> and numbers on the pants and giant red waistbands. I mean, just bizarre. I but remember that part. To answer your question, so those aforementioned White Sox uniforms are in there. The San Diego Padres, who for many years wore uh, brown and yellow uniforms, which people really gravitate toward now. And I'll joke and I'll say most of the people who gravitate toward them never had the opportunity to see them in the first place. Yeah. Uh, you know, UPS inspired, brown, yellow, all kinds of stuff. Um, the White Sox, uh, after their their floppy collars and shorts, wore what uh, some people call beach blankets. So it's a giant – the S-O-X socks spelled mm-hmm. out in a, in, a, in a horizontal on this giant band of, of navy with reds on, on top and bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean there there are a couple of very defined ones, but in the book I I go back to some more obscure ones perhaps that none of us actually saw in our lifetimes, but that's where research comes into it and uh yeah, some some good ones. But let's face it, the um the 70s and I do talk about this too, were a, a wonderful disaster when it comes to design and fashion and architecture, you know, our yeah. weirdest decade. So it's only fitting that the clothes of uh, of athletes reflected the clothes that anybody was wearing. Yeah, yeah, this is true. I I still don't understand the trend from I don't know if it was late seventies, early eighties, where everybody's away uniforms were that baby blue. Yeah, well, you know, uh, here you go. Uh, without getting into the weeds, and again, it's in the book. In nineteen sixty four, the Chicago White Sox introduced the baby blue 
Everybody else is wearing gray, just as a little toe in the water. The year before that, the Kansas City, now Oakland Athletics, went all in with green and gold uniforms that just shocked the baseball world. Sure. They were made fun of uh, with with all kinds of uh, descriptions and all this. Well, the White Sox said, "Well, we don't want to we don't want to go that far, so <laughs> we'll do this." And within a few years, yeah, I mean something. I mean, I have the numbers in here, but there are so many teams went for blue. And it was sort of this very joyous expression of Technicolor. And there were actually some very well-defined reasons for it. Color TV is coming into its own. Um, Uniforms went from flannel material to polyester, which allowed for colors that never could have happened just a few years before. And uh, and marketing, you know, everything's about marketing. Yeah, I just remember like the Expos, the Blue Jays and the Twins were the ones that really stood out to me of. I always yeah. saw that of uh, the baby blue with those. So, yeah, so what is your one of the most you know traditional franchises went with baby blues mm-hmm. and pullovers and yeah. Matter of fact, I have a, I have an entire chapter on the Expos and racing stripes, which were these big stripes of color that went down the sides of the sleeves, mm-hmm. down the sides of the jerseys, and right onto the sides of the pants. A very eighties thing. Mm-hmm. I remember this. So, so on the, on the opposite side of things, what's, what's your all time favorite, um, favorite uniform? Wow. I mean, you know, having watched this world series and you give thought to this and you're sitting there watching baseball and TV there, I I was asked a couple of weeks ago, uh, prior to the world series by CBS sports to talk a little bit about the uniforms for each team. And I described the Dodgers uniforms as being exactly what we would expect to see when we think of, when we conjure up thoughts of a baseball uniform, Mm -hmm. uh, the Dodgers uniforms, you know, are timeless. The script, it's this very balanced script in Royal blue. There is no trim because there's no need for any kind of piping or anything like that. And the red numbers just set the thing off. They are elegant. They are timeless. They are beautiful, crisp white in that California sunshine. I think I can make a strong case for the Dodgers uh, you know, the Yankees are the Yankees, and I'm a Red Sox fan, despite having grown up 10 miles <laughs> north of Yankee Stadium, which was another story. But, uh, you know, I'm a traditionalist. And uh, along the lines of hockey, which you had mentioned before, it must be said, I went to a um, Toronto Maple Leafs game in Toronto a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago with Chris Creamer of SportsLogos.net fame. Yeah. And saw the Toronto Maple Leafs and Detroit Red Wings play. Mm-hmm. The Maple Leafs in just blue and white. And the Red Wings in red and white. Mm-hmm. And it was a feast for the eyes. Huh. Trying to remember trying to remember what the newest Maple Leafs uniform I have we cut They're our cable, so I'm <laughs> very, yeah. very old school. But it looks like something it's a reverent update. And this is a hard thing, you know, updating a brand while touching backwards onto something that people care about. You know, sometimes professional teams especially will stray in this wilderness and come back to the classics. The classics are classics for a reason, but how do you, how do you update that in such a way that you respect the DNA and you don't just, you know, crib back to something that's purely retro. There's, there's a, there's an art to it. There definitely is. Well, I think one of the, and this is a hockey uniform. I think one of my favorite hockey uniforms, and I don't think it's like the best uniform out there, but I just like the fact that they, nod back to where they were before is um, Vancouver's uniform, where it's still the take on the old Hartford Whalers uniform. So that's, I love how they played with the cover color. And even when they adopt adapted the logo, you can still see those, uh, that history of the Whalers. Some remnants in the DNA. Well, you know, the Whalers, uh, again, for those who aren't necessarily, and you know, not everybody, uh, not every designer is a sports fan, to say the least, but sure. the Whalers very famously, had an, uh, a, a logo, which was a, a W with a whale's fluke coming out of the, the top with a negative space H. Brilliant mm-hmm. logo and a nice color scheme, a royal blue and a Kelly green, which really you're not going to see that often today. Mm-hmm. We've really geared toward very dark colors in sports. You know, there's a certain, you know, just as there's a vernacular for professional sports logos, there's a color scheme that, that we associate with sports. Yeah. And, it's 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 darkened up over the years away from all that, you know, wonderful, crazy 70s and 80s stuff. But I think it's swinging back the other way right now. I think uh, I think as consumers, we're accustomed to seeing things digitally mm-hmm. and uh, that's bright. And I think we're, we're getting into uh, brighter colors all of the wheels. Well, yeah, I mean, look at 
look at Houston's uh, uniforms with that bright orange and that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a deep navy blue, but it's still got some uh, some pop to it on screen. Well, in the case of the Astros, they came into existence in 1962 as the Houston Colt 45s, and their colors were navy blue and orange. Mm-hmm. Uh, they went to the rainbows, you know, 15 years after they were born, 13, whatever. And, they stuck um, with that the, for a long time. Yeah, well, you know, and then <laughs> so the 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 their most recent color scheme prior to this current one was uh, brick red, black, and sand. And these were the colors oh, yeah. of the trucking trucking company of the owner of the Astros at the time. Okay. So he sells the club. The new owner new owners want to come in and impart their stink. Sure. As well they should. And uh, you know, I believe that the the decision was to go back to the DNA. Makes all the sense in the world. Orange is a very, you know, there's a it's a powerful color. It's one of my favorite colors, matter of fact. Um, and you know, Astros look great winning. Anybody's going to look great winning the world series for the most part, sure. but the Astros and the orange looked, uh, especially joyous and vibrant. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely did. So, um, well, so we're getting kind of close to our time, but I want to, you know, just see aside from the book coming out in April, is there anything exciting that you've got going on that you can talk about? Let me think about this. Uh, I'm working on something for the Detroit Tigers, which is kind of cool. Um, I did a project last year, um, which I'm going to put it out there because it's relevant to something I'm working on that I can't talk about totally. But I did the um, season ticket package for the Chicago White Sox. I love that. So 81 little designs. I have it on my website. And, uh, you know, it's quite a marathon of a job. And a one-off thing, you know, it comes and it goes. But it was – Exceptionally well received mm-hmm. and a really fun design challenge for me because it did a little bit of everything. There's illustration, there's lettering, there's using photography, there's vintage stuff, vintage stuff that spans 115 years, something yeah, like the, that. The vintage stuff is by far my favorite of all that. Oh, thank you. And, and you know, vintage could be anything. There's a lot of 80s stuff in there and there's mm-hmm. stuff that looks like it was created in 1905. That's, so, that's uh, the specific one I was thinking of. <laughs> this is the 1905 looking one. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so um, – the latest I heard was that the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown actually asked for this to be included in their permanent collection. Oh, wow. So it's a piece of art, a great honor. Um, so I'm doing something similar to that. And, you know, I am I am a guy who prides myself in having my head in the trenches with a lot of very unglamorous projects mm-hmm. because, it's, you know, I, I love a busy day. So I've got a research project for minor league baseball going on right now that has to do with some – Vintage marks, got some other stuff going on. Always busy, you know. Um, it, it's it's a, a good day for me is to uh, get get down and and uh, you know get my hands dirty starting at uh, maybe seven thirty eight o'clock and not knock knock off until six fifteen. Very feeling very fulfilled and you know full of design. Awesome. Well, Todd, uh, where can people find you online? At my website, toddradom.com. Also on Twitter, I am a uh, big Twitter guy, at Todd Radom. And, uh, you know, always like hearing from people. And the beautiful part about social media, among some parts that aren't so beautiful, is that <laughs> interact people and get to know them a little bit better. And uh, also, I, I'm always doing uh, speaking things. I would assume I'm going to be uh, launching, a, a you know, a miniature book tour of some sort. I've already got a couple of things committed to for next year. So, uh, hopefully I see people in person and get to meet them aside from talking to them as I'm doing with you or communicating via the socials. Awesome. Todd, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me tonight. Jason, thank you so much for having me. Uh, again, a long time coming and, uh, anytime is a really fun conversation. <laughs> awesome. We'll go out and hug some necks. thank you so much (laughs) alright bye you can find out more about Todd on Twitter at Todd Radom and be sure to check out the links in the show notes for more ways to keep up with him you can keep up with the podcast on Twitter and Facebook at Creative SO Pod and follow Creative South on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creative South GA or over at CreativeSouth.com 
And I'm at Jay Frostholm on Dribble, Twitter, and Instagram. Visit jackprince.com and get 20% off orders over $25 when you use promo code CREATESOUTH17 at checkout. For a limited time, new Skillshare customers can get their first three months for just 99 cents to get unlimited access to thousands of classes when you sign up at Skillshare.com using promo code CREATIVESOUTH. What are you waiting for? Start learning today. And remember, if you like the show, help support us over at patreon.com slash creativesouth. And if you like the Creative South podcast, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. Rate us and leave a review. This helps more people find the podcast and allows us to keep getting awesome guests. Now go out and hug some necks.